Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. With Dianne Feinstein's decision not to run for U.S. Senate again, politicians across the state are now eyeing her job for themselves. And it's opening the door for another generation of politicians to take their seats. East Bay Representative Barbara Lee announced her bid for the Senate in February, which means that for the first time in 25 years, someone new will be repping her district in the House. One of the candidates running to replace Barbara Lee is BART Board Director Latifa Simon. Simon recently talked with our colleagues from the Political Breakdown podcast about growing up with a single mom in San Francisco's Western edition, her early work with Kamala Harris, facing threats while in office, and her run for Congress. And today, we're sharing that conversation with you. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're delighted to have back with us today a woman who has spent a lot of her life working to break the cycle of poverty, drugs, and crime that too many young people get swept up in. Latifa Simon is currently a director on the BART board, where she represents parts of Oakland and Berkeley and other parts of the East Bay, but she's also a longtime advocate for civil rights, economic justice, and criminal justice reform. And by the way, she was also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Award. Latifa Simon, welcome back to Political Breakdown. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Good Thanks to see you. Thanks for being here. Well, you know, on this show, we always like to talk about how, where people came from. Yeah. And you grew up in the Fillmore Western Edition in public housing in San Francisco. Um, tell us about your life, you know, there growing up, your family. What was it like? I grew up actually 
in the in the early parts of my life in um, a beautiful uh, part of the Western Edition on Fulton Street, the beautiful Victorians. Later on in my life, we did move to low-income housing um, as a young person. Um, but I was raised in a very deep tradition of of activism, of organizing. My dad's family came here in the very early 40s. Bunny Simon, my grandfather, opened up the first eight jazz nightclubs in San Francisco that were black-owned, of course. San Francisco was a segregated place. In the 1940s, he came from Louisiana hoping to escape racial terror, and he did find it here. But like many folks who came from the South... um, especially pre-World War II and post-World War II and during, created community and family and business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so proud of that. My grandmother, she was the president of the Lions Club in Ocean Angleside, oh, wow. going to her house, actually, Diane Feinstein, then mayor, would sometimes be in her living room. My mother's family is from Arkansas. Um, then... And when her mother died, she moved to Rockford on her 18th birthday, post-high school graduation, came out here, lived with my aunt, my parents met, uh, and I was raised in the Fillmore. And definitely a deep child of the Bay Area. I got into some trouble as a young person, was on probation, <laughs> in well, and out of high school. Yeah, yeah, too yeah, far. We'll get to that. I'm curious, though, I mean, I think your mom mostly raised you, but it sounds yeah. like you were still um, around your grandparents uh-huh. on your dad's side quite uh-huh. a bit. Uh-huh. What? Tell us about your mom. She's still around helping. Right? My mom's awesome. Um, she worked at the VA hospital for over 27 years, and she's retired now. One of the reasons why I deeply have always looked at organized labor as a, a deep function a, 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 of our communities. My mother can retire with some dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, and she lives in the sunset. She ha- loves her plants. Um, and she raised two girls on her own. And what I have learned from her um, and what I've learned from so many of the women who have raised me is that um, sometimes two or three jobs is what you need to do, no matter what happens, we have to sort of keep our communities and families together. And that's really how I've lived my professional life mm-hmm. beyond beyond whatever difficulties. I've always known I got to keep a payroll going. I got to be good to the folks who look up to me. I got to treat my kids with dignity and respect so that they can do the same. We've heard uh, London Breed talk about growing up in the Western Edition mm-hmm. in public housing and, you know, s- witnessing a lot of, that's you right. know, violence and death and all kinds of things. Did you experience that when you were growing up? I mean, you said you moved into public housing, maybe, I don't know how old you were, but mm-hmm. not you, you weren't born there. Yeah, I was in high school. Listen, our communities, um, what's so beautiful about San Francisco is, you know, you could be living in a in a kind of a beat down Victorian and three blocks down, there's a public housing unit. We were Three all, blocks across the street. Across the I street. mean, you know. We were, we're, the Western Edition is, again, one of the, uh, to me, the most dynamic places and spaces while it's deeply changed. Absolutely. Growing up in the 80s, you ask any person who was raised in city, did they feel the impact of the war on drugs? Mm-hmm. Any, any urban neighborhood, any dense space and place, um, why I am uh, I've been so passionate about how systems fail and don't work for folks. Um, I knew and loved so many young people who made life or death choices and are still in prisons and jails for those choices. And I know from the work that I've done that for a fraction of the cost, we could get to the root causes of those issues and send them on the right path. Absolutely. I buried dozens of friends, um, buried dozens of friends. And when when I was running uh, the Young Women's Freedom Center for so many years, um, I 
had to deal with the the, the reality um, that young people are often preyed upon. There's nothing that I think we all want more to, than to live in safe communities where we feel like we can put our little kids on a big wheel. There's a misnomer that only folks in the suburbs want that or only moderates and folks on the right want that. If anything, folks like myself and folks like London and folks like our children who have seen sort of the, the depths of poverty and the depths of violence want safe communities. And that's what I've been working on my whole life. Yeah. So you mentioned Young Women's Freedom Center. You ended up there um, very young mm-hmm. and as uh, executive director. You also... Well, I don't know. Did you drop out of high school? Uh, many times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read you were on debate team for all four years, but you dropped out. In and out. Oh, yeah. Um, I know you got arrested for shoplifting. Tell us about the, those teen years and like how you ended up pregnant, but mm-hmm. also in this incredible job that really changed the trajectory of your life. I went to George Washington High School, and any any teacher who's still on this earth will tell you Um that I definitely struggled. I was in and out and in and out and in and out. And actually, Stanford Chandler, who for many folks who were born and raised in San Francisco, he was the debate coach for George Washington High School. He was one of the folks who kept bringing me back. Um, You know, I went to state championships pretty much every year. Um, He and there were a number of few other folks who knew how smart I was. But I definitely struggled. Um, I struggled hard, not just academically, but really socially. I got into a lot of trouble. Like normal kids, I ended up in the juvenile justice system, and it was very difficult to get out. But I found an opportunity to work at a small organization that later on I ended up taking over with a baby on my hip. I had Amina right at sort of the cusp of my 19th birthday. Um, And I was 18 and pregnant, and um, I, I can't believe that was 26 years ago. She's graduating from law school in three weeks. Wow, I can't believe it. Um, it's amazing. But, you know, becoming a young executive director of an organization who had a, a deep vision and mission to ensure that young women, both that are members who are on the streets and in jails and are young employees— had everything that they needed, not just to do better and get out of system, but to change the material conditions of our community for our children, for our elders. Um, I, I, I was self-taught and also had a lot of mentorship over the years of how to raise money, how to be a really good manager. But you manager. had a lot in common with the women you were helping. Of course. Too. Of course. I yeah. know every end of this city. Uh, <laughs> I have, been, I have um, I've seen a lot. Yeah. I've seen a lot. And I also know that the folks who are often so afraid of and the folks who actually many people who've crossed social contracts and hurt other folks, I've seen them be able to come back um, and actually be huge um, benefits to community. And again, I, I think that because we know what to do, many of us who've been on the ground, um, it is frustrating to see bad system actors making decisions that don't actually get to the root cause and change these conditions. Why I'm running for Congress. Yeah. We mentioned at the top that you have long history with Kamala Harris. How did you first come across her? Was she DA or running for DA? How did you get connected? She wasn't running. She was the assistant city attorney under Louise Rennie. Louise Mm -hmm. Rennie had brought her here from Alameda County to run a task force, to launch a task force on what was happening in the underground street economy and the sex trafficking uh, rings with an S that the police department and, in fact, the the district attorney couldn't figure out there were literally hundreds of children. There still are in Alameda County. I see it every day on our streets and our D.A. and our police department were arresting and charging these girls and gender nonconforming youth um, with 
with pretty deep charges. And what Kamala had done in the East Bay was work with victims of sex trafficking instead of prosecuting them as a DA to find and direct who was hurting them and who was raping them and to figure out how to get those young people care. So Louise Rennie brought her here to do the same thing, not just to to do it, but to start a task force to expose how, in fact, a progressive San Francisco was locking up children who had been raped and abused on the streets. My organization had been working with those amazing and resilient young people developing their power and giving them a space and a place, one, to be employed, two, to sort of heal from that work. She started a task force, invited me and some of those young women to be a part of it. Um, She started coming to our center every other week doing Know Your Rights workshops in her chucks. Um, And, you know, it was about a year later where she said she wanted to run for the district attorney position. And I was actually deeply saddened because... um, I spent my job fighting DAs, trying to get girls free every single day. Girls who were arrested, charged for nonviolent offenses, who were being sent down to the California Youth Authority. And I said, you know, Kamala, I don't want to have, we're going to come protest you. Like, you're the person who, if you do this job, you're part of the problem. Um, She won. And she called me one day and she said, I really think it's important for you to come and work for me. And again, I said, you're the man. And you know what she said? She's like, no, I'm a woman with four-inch heels. Come and work for me. Either you are going to stand outside with a bullhorn or you're going to sit with me at my desk and we're going to develop a program to get young people working and out of our system. And I did. And I did. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. With us is BART Board Director and Congressional Candidate Latifah Simon. Okay, so before we move on from this, I know that not only did she make you come work for the man, the prosecutor's (laughs) office, Kamala Harris also demanded that you went to college and I believe maybe even checked your... Receipts, essentially, every semester. I got to I got to tell you, um, Vice President Harris is the toughest and and best boss I'll ever have. She's extremely demanding that we, one, created a program that actually changed people's real lives to get young people off corners. Um, But absolutely, she wanted me to be the best that I could be. I went to Mills College um, in the morning and then evening after work. Um, The last time I saw her, I was so happy to say, you know, Vice President, I just graduated. I just graduated from USF during COVID. I got my MPA, um, very much focused on public sector economics. It's a wonderful program. Um, But of course, she wanted to know my GPA, too. Uh, (laughs) Still. This was literally at her residence. She had a a gathering for young electeds. And um, I'm very proud of, of how much I learned from her, how tough she was on me and other young people in her office. You were a MacArthur Genius Award winner at the age of 26, I think. Uh, did, did you feel like a genius? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I like the young women who run the Young Women's Freedom Center now. Um, they work 24 hours a day. Um, if someone is in danger or in trouble, I've never driven a car, you know, but I'd be on the bus at night. There was no Uber, no Lyft, finding a young woman who was in danger. I was at court every single day ensuring that young people had representation that cared about them or the judge knew that no matter what hell or high water, um, that we were invested in that young woman not selling poison on streets, but actually going to school. I have young women now who, um, you know, are physicians. We knew, we and we still know, that if we invest deeply, um, that we get results. But we also know, and this is really important, that folks like me who have seen the depths, again, of violence and poverty, it is so clear when a woman is raped When someone dies at the hands of someone who crosses that social contract, when people hurt people, accountability is really important. And the way that we have been doing it, done work. Um, So I, um, 
didn't feel like a genius, still don't. I'm always in a learning <laughs> mode. Um, I am absolutely um, the product of the people that um, have raised me and have poured into me. Those are young people and those are mentors and those are electeds from all spectrums, all sides of sort of political views. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, being a child of the Bay Area, you have that benefit. I want to ask you before we talk a little bit more about your elected career life. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who loved you deeply was your husband, Kevin Weston. and. Yeah. He was diagnosed shortly after you had your second daughter, Mm -hmm. Layla, uh, with leukemia. Um, He died after a really tough battle. I think you guys got married in the hospital. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Kevin, but also what you learned from that? Because you came out of that after your MacArthur Genius Award, after all the success, having to file for bankruptcy because our system is so broken. Well, one of the things that I really deeply appreciated about, you know, being the wife of Kevin was learning how to love unconditionally, like deeply unconditionally. Kevin was an amazing journalist, um, a thought leader in so many ways. Um, And when he was diagnosed with a terminal disease, I couldn't digest it initially. I I just, I couldn't, like I was going to lose, finally in my life, there was some some calm. For the two years plus that we had him um, during this horrific cancer, the clinical toll that it took on his body, I watched it every day. We were in the hospital for months and months and months, being right by his side, seeing, again, like all he really wanted to do was just hang out with his daughter. And, you know, the lines in his body, the radiation, the chemotherapy, even with insurance. Um, you know, Kaiser was wonderful to us, and yet he had a terminal disease. We did everything that we could to keep him alive. Um, we went to the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. We He had a stem cell transplant. Every single document that was put in front of me, no matter what the cost was, if it would give Kevin another day, um, I didn't care, and I would do it all over again, even with health insurance. We ended up in tremendous amount of debt, leaving our children behind um, to get treatment. I didn't believe that he was ready to die, and neither did he. So we did everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even with insurance, um, I mean, I, I still have bankruptcy on my record for another year. And it's okay, because my daughter actually has video where she can hear her father's voice. But I learned And I met literally hundreds of people on that journey trying to live another day, met their wives, met their husbands and their children and their babies, traveling to hospital to hospital to hospital, living on those wards. And the day that Kevin died on Father's Day 2014, um, I had lost all of my breath at that point. I'd lost my breath when they came to get his body from my bed. And I knew that I was going to have to live a life with our values in ways that he would want us to live together and that's doing everything that that you're doing that we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I owe him that. I want to ask you about your job on the Bart Board, mm-hmm. uh, which you got elected to a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and you're legally blind, mm-hmm. and I think I don't know how long that's been the case, but how does that figure into the work you do on the Bart Board? Because you rely on public transit. Yeah, everything that I've done in in my life has been very connected to my personal experience. Um, one of the biggest joys that I've had about being on the BART board is to be able to fight consistently for mothers, for low-income people, for folks who are transit-dependent like myself. When I was the president of the board in 2020, in 2020, I was so happy in January when I was elected president by March. You know, we had no budget because there was nobody catching our trains. Our ridership went down under 5%. 
And one of the first things that I felt was, what if we don't exist anymore? Um, and I began to get on the phone with our general manager and other leaders around the country to say, something is going to happen in the Trump administration. Something is going to have to happen. And we need to make sure that the transit community is centered in that. So if, in Care Package 1, 2, and 3, um, we were centered in that because of our advocacy, because of the clarity that for many people around the country, in fact, transit and mobility is the basis of how they not only feed their families, how they get health care, how their kids get to school. I have never driven a car. I've been visually impaired my whole life. And every single decision that I make in the world has everything to do with my disability. From where I live, I have to take public transit. For where my kids go to school, can I figure it out? Um, one of the things that I realized when I first got on the BART board was I might have the opportunity to work on fair justice that children, for instance, over the age of 11 were charged full fare because there was never a transit-dependent single mom on the BART board. No one cared. So, so many things that uh, we've been able to do together as as a board um, through the lens that I've, um, I've been so honored to bring along with my colleagues, I believe have worked better for writers, including the work I've done with our chief. You know, I think I've talked to our chief, our chief of police more than anybody on our BART board for the last four years that he's been chief, trying to work extremely hard to increase the number of folks, safety staff, both sworn and unsworn, on our service uh, to make sure that there's folks on trains who are staff, both armed and unarmed. That's because I ride the system every single day. I don't always tweet about it. But I'm doing the work. Yeah. Well, you bring up Twitter, and I do want to ask you. I know you are one of a number of East Bay black women representatives and Oakland City Council yourself yes. who have been targets of really vitriolic harassment, not just on Twitter. Yes. In real life, I believe you had to move yes. because of it. Yeah. How do you deal with that? And, and I wonder if it gives you any pause before you seek an office like Congress when everything we've seen nationally. Um, it's extremely scary. Um, I would... You know, during the 2020 um, year that I was president, you know, I was getting death threats consistently on my phone from unknown callers. And I always pick up unknown, unknown callers because I've had my cell, same, same cell phone for 30 years. I don't know who it is. Someone incarcerated, someone in trouble. Um, horrific, horrific threats. And I began to report them to our chief. I, it was only less than a year ago during public comment that someone called um, and left a violent racial threat during a BART board meeting and no one stopped the meeting. I had to stop the meeting. Did you just hear what was said to me? I mean, my life is threatened almost every week. Mm -hmm. um, and folks sometimes say, well, that's what comes with the job. I pray about it all the time. And I know this is the work that I'm supposed to do. Um, it doesn't make it feel any better, but I, I know that I'm not alone in that. Um, I am scared. I get scared all the time. But, you know, my hope and my joy is a lot deeper than my fear. You know, if you get elected to Congress, uh, you're going to be going back there. Maybe you'll be in the majority. Maybe you'll be in the minority. You know, don't know. Um, but given all the experiences you've been describing and, the, and also the tone of the world and the partisanship back there, how do you envision yourself dealing with that climate? I don't know if you guys know me, but um, <laughs> we do. I mean, I have learned to, especially during my six years on the BART board, it's about getting it done. 
And I have learned and matured a lot even in those six years. I spent a lot of time arguing and yelling the first couple of years. And I realized this actually doesn't work for the people that I'm representing because I disagree with someone. I actually need to move something. One of the things that I know about my experience is that Americans actually share a very similar experience. People are dying in every family. People have health insurance. Some folks don't. Folks are waiting on buses in the middle in the middle of the day. And in most cities around the country, transit has been slashed. Infrastructure is critical. Child care is critical. Life insurance is critical. If we think about treatment on demand from San Francisco you know, to Portland, Oregon, folks don't have an opportunity to get well when they're unfortunately cursed with the disease of dis- addiction. These issues, reproductive health, can you imagine? You know, Layla was a twin. Layla was a twin and her, her wonderful twin is now in heaven. Um, I can't imagine if I didn't have the resources when that child died in, in my womb, um, the, the, the medical attention to save all three of our lives. Unfortunately, it was a horrible, horrible experience in my life. Um, but I had doctors who treated me first. In many of our states, women are not going to have that basic fundamental right to be treated. And it's about sharing stories. It's not always about sort of throwing paint and fighting. And so in the, to me, in the shoes of Barbara Lee, which I will never be able to fill, <laughs> in the 30 years that people have poured into me, being a child of San Francisco, being half raised in Oakland, being a young mom, being a widow, being someone who's worked two or three jobs, being someone who's led organizations, who's raised, who knows how to raise money, be a good employer. I know what it's like to have to fire someone when we can't make payroll. I know what that feels like for my mom not to have enough money some months to pay rent. And more importantly, I know what to do about it now. Well, you've got uh, a race ahead of you. There are some other people running, we should say, but uh, you've really in certain, you've gotten a lot of endorsements. There's a lot of momentum behind you, so we look forward to watching that race unfold. But Latifa Simon, thank you so much for coming in Thanks, and Latifa. sharing your life story with us. I'm excited. All right. <laughs> Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.